Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Good morning, Shelly. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm freezing. Uh, Tis the season, isn't it? Oh, yep. Because we're recording this. What is the date today? Today is December 9th. Yeah. Yeah. And my office is kind of sort of really meant to be a three season room. Like we have electric heat in here, but on the really cold days. It doesn't cut it. <laughs> I hear ya. I hate being cold so much. I don't. I know I'm like a New England girl, and I'm supposed to love the snow and everything, but no, I hate it. I hate driving in it. Me too. It's pretty for two hours, and then it gets all like turned up with mud and it's like yep. in yellow spots where your stupid dog and <laughs> it's like all bundled up, and it takes you three hours to get them bundled up, and they go outside for like ten minutes before they come back in. <laughs> and then they trudge wetness all over your house. You're stepping in puddles and your socks, and you're like, "Stop it! I hate it." Yep. Yep, I'm not like a skiing person or anything like that. I don't like nope. any winter sports. Nope, I hear you. I'm the same way, and people are always like, you just need to find something that you like to do in the winter. I'm like, you mean hibernate? Like, you <laughs> mean stand up like it's in bed? <laughs> right, from like October until June, I can totally do that. <laughs> yeah. Why do I live where most of the time I hate the weather? Mm-hmm. I wish it snowed like on the holiday to make it look pretty. And then that's yeah. like, one yeah. day a year would be enough. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly how I feel. Come like December 26th. I'm like, all right, let's move into spring. Let's move it along. Why do yeah. we live here? <laughs> I know. Because I was born and raised. I'm not leaving my family. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I like living in Massachusetts, actually. I think we have a, like uh, a lot of great history. We do. We have great history. We have some of the best colleges, hospitals, and resources you can't get anywhere else in the world. We just have a lot of snow and cold. We just have a lot of snow and cold. Yeah. And gray days like this that make me want to drink cup after cup of coffee. (laughs) I have found though to manage it, getting, um, finding things to look forward to every day. And sometimes interestingly, I do this to trick myself because I don't like the fact that the days are so short. The light is so short. I'm a wicked sun and light person. So there are times I have specifically put my errands off until late day when it's starting to get dark so that I don't get that sleepy hold on me at four o'clock. That way I'm kind of staying busy and it just makes my transition into night feel more natural versus like I need to go to bed at 530. Yeah. That's a good idea. I hate the whole, it's just really hard when I work a hospital shift because I come out and it's dark and that just kind of kills me. Whereas when I'm going, doing home visits, I'm like still driving around in the daytime and getting outside. So I don't feel yeah. that. Yep. Little tricks, little tricks. Don't forget to take your vitamin D. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Load up. Yeah. Let's talk about our favorites of the week. All right. 
right. You can go first. All right. My favorite of the week. So I've been kind of playing around with shampoo and conditioner because I have really problematic, super curly hair. It's very dry, very porous. And I'm also rapidly turning excessively completely gray. So I color my hair to my natural color. And I also get keratin treatments like every few months, Mm -hmm. typically like every four months because they're wicked expensive, but it transforms my hair. I was the girl in school that never wore my hair down. It was far too embarrassing. I always hit it in ponytails and braids and whatever. Just, I would not be seen in public for years until I did the keratin treatments. I didn't even want to make plants at night because night air is more moist And I would say, make my hair look nice. And it would take me hours. And then I'd go out and in five minutes, my hair was a huge ball of puffy on my head. So shampoo and conditioner and hair products are important to me. And I'm not great at all of this stuff. Like you and I talk about this all the time. Like I barely remember to wash my face before I go to bed. I probably never do sometimes, but I'm like, I brush my teeth, I shower, but you are not going to catch me beautifying myself. However, it starts to take a toll. And (laughs) so I've been on this quest of finding really good shampoo and conditioner. And I borrowed some from my neighbor that she had just gone to her hairdresser, Alurum Moisturizing Shampoo and Conditioner. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm due for a keratin treatment. So my hair is like really getting awful. And this was like magic. I also am very dry, which, you know, my hair is dry, my skin's dry, my scalp is dry. So I can't wash too much. But if I don't, my scalp doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Like I just gets kind of just very dry and built up. But this seemed to not only do wonders for my hair, but wonders for my scalp. Nice. Because I'm dry and I have eczema, like sometimes around my hairline, certain mm-hmm. shampoos and conditioner can cause me to get like dry patches around my hairline. And this was like, everything was perfect. Anyway, that's my new favorite, Allurum Moisturizing Shampoo and Conditioner. You can find it on Amazon. Nice. So there you go. I like hearing about your hair adventures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Like this is like, I kind of can't believe how nice it's been. I washed it like three yeah. days ago. It's definitely do. I want to wash it now, but it made it so smooth and soft and it just has felt really good. Yeah. I don't have normal hair in any way. So. Well, your hair is always gorgeous. Uh, chemicals. I can never be a total crunchy mom because I'm like, give me all the chemicals for my hair. Mm -hmm. So they kill me in 10 years. At least I'm going down looking good. Like that's kind of how I am. So (laughs) having spent seriously 40 years of my life hiding my hair, I don't care if it's chemicals now. Mm. My hair is not falling out. It's the first time in my life I can look like somebody else. Like go into a restaurant and not be like, my hair is walking in five minutes before I am. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and you're the one that helped me transform my hair. Do you remember how like dry and damaged it was? And you yeah. were like, "Girl, why are you washing your hair every day?" And I was like, right. "You're not supposed to wash your hair every day." <laughs> and you like right. talked me through the whole process, and right. now I wash my hair like twice a week, and it right. for my hair. Yep, yep, I remember that. And you have great hair; like you have such silky smooth hair now. But I do remember because it was drier then. And it's so healthy now. I'm jealous of your hair. Every time I'm with you, I'm like, oh, I love her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my favorite of the week is a book. Yeah. 
And it's called Why Starting Solids Matters by Amy oh, Brown. Nice. It's not very long. Like it's a short, it's a quick read. And it goes, what I like about it is that it goes through the history of how we feed our babies. And how oh, we feed I love babies. that. Yeah. And what's really interesting is when she goes back much further, but in, during the like 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, when Gerber entered the scene and how like Gerber changed. <laughs> yeah. Like your baby is two weeks old. Get it on chicken dinner, damn it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much how like it became like this huge, like money making monstrous thing where, you know, their goal was to just make money. Make money. Right. And the different theories that were out there, there was like one doctor that was recommending babies get solid foods before they leave the hospital after birth. <laughs> Here's a piece of steak. You can come back for like six years. <laughs> Offer right. your baby bran mash, you know, on day two and day three. Uh, and it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And I really like, she's very much into evidence-based information. So everything that all of the suggestions that she makes for like how and when to start your baby on solids, it's all backed by the research and she presents the research. So I really like that because I'm like a research nerd and that's how I handle my life. Like if I have a problem, I like to throw books at it until it goes away. (laughs) (laughs) What I read was this. Yes. (laughs) You do that with kids. I read all about you go away. (laughs) Teenagers. husband and my kids, it drives them nuts because I'm always saying, well, the studies show. <laughs> and now they're like, dude, this study. Rolling of the eyes. Right. One of the kids was like, okay, Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, actually, the studies show. And he's like, okay, Sheldon, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's really good book. And like I said, it's not a long read at all. And it's really interesting with the background and the history because I kind of like really like history too. And it will give you some good guidelines on starting solids. So that yeah. is my favorite of the week. Nice. Excellent. I'm going to have to take a look at that. I like things that give history too. It helps me to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then you find out there's so many reasons like why, right. Why we do things the way we do. And the reason why might not be very relevant or even accurate, but it's just, you know, because of this past event, this is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Hey everyone. I know that having a baby can be a little overwhelming and confusing. If you're looking for a place where you can get all your childbirth prenatal education needs, visit ShellyTaftIBCLC.com. Nicole and I are offering right now an online virtual childbirth educating education class, a prenatal breastfeeding class, and we're soon launching a prenatal newborn care class and a prenatal sleep education course. So you can learn all about infant sleep even before the baby comes. So I'm going to drop that link in the notes and you can check it out and we hope to see you there. All right, let's go into our question of the week. Great. So this week's question is, I'm 38 weeks pregnant and I'm looking into buying a baby carrier. Do you have any recommendations for a specific carrier? I find that there are so many out there. It's a little overwhelming trying to choose. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton. A ton. And I had my babies. There were a lot. 
and now there's like even more. Yeah, I did agree. Did you use baby carriers, Nicole? I did. I had initially with the first kids a baby Bjorn. Mm-hmm. That was kind of all we had back then. Mm-hmm. And I did like wearing my babies. With Grace, I had one too. And somebody gave me a wrap. And I, I have to be honest, I don't remember which one it was. Mm-hmm. And she really didn't love to be held super close. So it was not something that worked for us. Um, she did better when she was in a backpack. Like when I went hiking, I put her on my back. Mm-hmm. She liked that. It, I think it made her feel more independent. She's just always been... She didn't like being held close. She didn't like being held in. She liked to face out. Yeah. So she's different. But um, all I really ever had access to before her was the baby Bjorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back then there wasn't as many choices. Yeah. I had way too many carriers. I did start with the baby Bjorn like you did. And then I found out there was like a whole world of like other carriers. So this was 16 years ago. And I ended up getting a wrap and then a sling and a pouch and a ergo carrier was the most structured yeah. that I had. And then it just kind of like spirals into this massive addiction where I think at one point I had like 26 different carriers. <laughs> that was like so mugs. Yes. <laughs> it was so mugs, yarn and books for, <laughs> for Shelly. Yeah. Baby carriers. Yep. I was sewing my own carriers. I belonged to like a baby wearing group where I helped run it. We had like a library. So nice. And I think, you know, especially with Hunter, Hunter was such a tough baby and you couldn't put him down. You couldn't, he wouldn't tolerate being put down. And I had, you know, two toddlers to chase around. So I would just throw him in the carrier and go. So it kind of saved my sanity. The other thing that I really loved was like, um, it just made, I hated pushing around the stroller. So, and I'm sure you remember this, Nicole, when we had babies, the strollers were not these cute little compact things that they have now. No, they, they weighed 500 pounds. Yes. It was like right. trying to steer an SUV through the floor. <laughs> they didn't yes. turn three. It was so complicated. Right. Like I see these strollers that are out now and I'm like, what the heck? Why? Yeah. They weigh three pounds. You can carry it on your pinky. Yes, you it's a snap and go system. Right. We had none of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I hated the strollers and it was so much easier for me to just, you know, pop the baby in the carrier and just walk through the store like that. So I had that. So when you're trying to choose a carrier, there are some guidelines that you want to keep in mind because there are carriers out there that are not safe or not good for baby's hips or back or spine. Yeah. So any carrier that you choose, the baby should be high up enough where you could reach down. You could bend your neck and kiss their head. Right. So if they're so low that you can't kiss their head, that's too low. You want them to be up higher where you can kind of monitor them and see what's going on. The other thing that you want and ideally in a carrier would be to have a variety of positions that you can use like forward facing or inward facing or on the side or on the back. Sometimes if a carrier only allows the baby to face outward in front of you, that can be very overstimulating for them. And what's nice about the other carriers there, you can turn your baby around is if they start to get overstimulated, you just turn your baby around and they snuggle in with you and take a break from all the stimulation. That's another thing you want to keep in mind. The most important thing is that the baby's knees should be held above their butt or above their hips. So like frog legs almost. 
if their baby's legs are just kind of dangling down, that puts a lot of pressure on their pelvic area and their spine. So it's not really good for their spine. And that is something that I think the baby Bijorn might have changed their design a little bit. But back when I had that carrier, I wish I had known that it wasn't the best carrier for my baby's hips. Yeah, we didn't know. Yeah, you go with what you know. So yes. any carrier that holds the knees above the hips is good. And then the rest is more like personal preference. Some people really like wraps. I tended to find the wraps were the most comfortable out of the carriers, but also the most complicated. So if you don't have the patience to go through a learning curve where you learn to wrap your baby, maybe it's not the best one for you. I really like pouches and slings for when they're teeny tiny, like newborns, because you're taking your baby in and out of them all the time to feed and change diapers. And they're very easy to just pop in and out, whereas the wraps you have to like rewrap every time. Yeah. I would typically use like the baby slings and pouches when they're little. And then as they got older, I would use the wraps or the more structured carriers like the Ergo. I do remember that at the time we were living in Connecticut and I would put summer on my back in the Ergo and we would walk to the grocery store, do our grocery shopping and then come home. And one day I came home and I took her off my back and she had shoplifted a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> Which I have no idea why, how I didn't notice or the clerk. (laughs) Probably didn't want to say anything like, you know, your baby is a little bit of a thief. (laughs) It was super cute. You might want to start disciplining your kid. (laughs) Like I brought her down and she's like, look, and she had the jar of peanut butter. She was so proud of herself. I'm pleased. So cute. We have to bring this back and pay for it. Yep. Yep, that's a riot. If you're wearing your baby on your back. Yes, exactly. They're not little kleptos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sticky fingers over there. Yep. (laughs) But I would take my kids hiking and put the youngest in the carrier, and it was so so much easier. Made my life a lot easier. Some women can breastfeed in a carrier, some can't. It just depends on the size of baby, size of breast. But it's always nice if you're able to because then you can just walk and breastfeed at the same time. Right. And then another thing is sometimes, you know, if the baby doesn't appear to like it, just start moving. Sometimes it can take a little bit for the baby to get used to it. So if you put the baby in and they're fussing, just start walking, moving, bouncing. And that can be a good way to kind of get them used to it. But most babies tend to love being in the carrier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Well, don't throw your stroller away, guys, because you probably have much nicer ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Trust me. I know. And the little wheels we used to have, you know, the two-inch little wheels, they'd break. Yeah. You know, like three strollers per kid. It took up so much space in the trunk of your car, too, because yeah. they were not compact yeah. at all. Right. I remember those days of like in and out of errands or whatever. And I have, you know, the 80 pound stroller, the kids, the toddlers who needed buckling in, wrinkling them in with winter coats and winter gear in a diaper bag, sippy cups, a whole nine yards. I'm like, I would be so physically exhausted by like 10 in the morning. <laughs> Just like my arms can't do one more thing. It was mm-hmm. so hard. Yeah. I mean, and not that motherhood's easy, but the stuff has made it a little bit more. Yeah. The newer things have made a lot of things easier Mm -hmm. for moms today, like the stroller. Yeah. And I feel like when I say that, I sound like my mom because I remember her saying that when I had my babies, like, oh, we didn't have all this stuff when I had you. 
But now I find myself saying that a lot to clients, like this is a really cool tool that you can use. And they didn't even have it when I was having my kids and I wish they did. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. I hear you. Question. (laughs) Yes. A very good question. One that obviously we have a lot to talk about with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this week we are interviewing Daniel Batman. And she's okay. going to be talking to us about how to create a family business plan. Nice. I'm really excited about this one. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. It sounds like something you would love. Yes. And we'll be yeah. right back with that. This week, I'm so excited to introduce Danielle Bettman. She is an early childhood educator and a parenting coach, and she's going to be talking to us about family business plans. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd love to. So I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I have two daughters. They are seven and six. And I've been married to my husband for 11 years now, but we're high school sweethearts. So it's technically been like 18. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I started off teaching in Head Start and early Head Start programs and moved into home visiting uh, was Save the Children. So I worked with families on my caseload cool. for an hour every week in their homes. It was incredibly rewarding. I loved meeting my families. I still am friends with them on Facebook and to this day. But I really realized at that point that what happens at home is what really matters most. And it's what wires kids. And the parent-child relationship is where all the magic happens. And parents are doing the hardest job in the world with no training or manual or orientation period. So I knew that I wanted to get back into working one-on-one with families again because it matters not only for that one child for that one year, but it matters for all the siblings, for their whole childhood, and whatever you can do to help a parent directly helps that child. So I started my business wholeheartedly in 2019 to just better equip families with understanding child development and having more tools to contain the behavior of their particularly strong-willed kid or hard-to-parent kid and try to navigate that dynamic between parenting partners so that they can really feel like they have each other's back and are on the same team. So that's the process of the family business plan that we're going to talk about today. That sounds amazing. And I totally 100% agree with like, it's so important to have both parents on the same page. Yeah. Or at least in the same book. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Same genre. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly is a family business plan? Yeah. So it's basically a concept I made up. And I was writing my own business plan for my company, thinking through all these prompts and just bringing in so much intentionality into the vision that I was wanting to create and the way that that was going to happen and kind of my core values of what was important to me, I really had the thought of what would happen if we took that level of intentionality that we always bring to work and brought it home and created kind of a vision and end goals and core values for our family. How much more would that help us feel like we have a plan in the first place and feel like we're doing the things that do really matter to us at the end of the day? It really would just bring in some of the best practices of you know, leadership that we know uh, to be true within the business world, the corporate world, and then also you know, creating a better team dynamic of having a lot more clear communication and shared values and language 
between the people that are trying to parent together within this family organization. So I kind of took that idea and ran with it to make it very practical so that families could really see this for themselves and create their own identity within their family unit and then use that as kind of their strong foundation to build upon once they're then making decisions and moving forward. I love that. Yeah. Go ahead, Shelly. <laughs> I was just going to say like I've, I've written a business plan and found it a little daunting and only because, and I think it was more because I had absolutely no guidance. I mean, I had like a template that I was looking at on Google. Yeah. So part of your services is guiding the families on, yes. on creating this family. It's okay. What is like usually when a family contacts you, what is usually the first step? Like, can you take us a little bit through the process? Yeah. So I've really found that what families need is a person and like even the best book or course or, you know, resource with like random posts is only going to help so much because we do all need really individualized support and, you know, problem solving because every family is so different and there is no one size fits all solution or formula for if you just do A plus B, then you get, you know, perfect human C in your child. Like it's just not that simple. It's way more complicated. So with everything going on, let alone the pandemic, I really feel like every family needs someone holding their hand to say like, here's the information that you need exactly right now. And then here's kind of the next step and the next step. And I'm going to keep tweaking and troubleshooting with you along the way. When a new family reaches out and starts one-on-one coaching with me, we start at the very first piece of the family business plan, which is basically just jotting down from the dark, what are your end goals? Like when your child or children are 20 to 25, what is really going to have mattered? What do you want them to be able to do? Who do you want them to be? And just like start getting that on paper. And some of those things, you know, we've thought about, but we've just never actually identified or talked about or gotten, you know, written down. So that's where we start. And then we start to think, okay, if that's where we're shooting, why do we create that trajectory to make sure that we're on the right path and that we're getting to that? Because if it is, you know, just really wanting them to have a strong relationship with you and be open and honest in their communication or that they're going to come home for Christmas, then how do we interact now so that that's what's going to happen later? That's kind of like the first piece. Yeah. Like a blueprint. Yeah. I, I guess my answer to that question would be like, I hope they don't say too many bad things about me in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no expectations. Yeah. <laughs> I remember actually coming to that when my big kids were younger thinking, what's my end goal with them? And then reverse engineering how to get there. Mm -hmm. However, um, my partner and I were not on the same page. And so I would say that that is the most important piece right there for us. We weren't. And I mean, eventually resulted in not being married anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do believe that, like, I love this kind of stuff and I believe in it, but I absolutely believe that your partnership has to be on the same page. You you can't do it together if you're doing it differently and your expectations are different and your responses are going to be different and your goals are different. 
Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. The kids are being pulled in different directions. Yes. And that is really what I grew to realize about every single one of my clients for like my whole first year of uh, working with families. That was every family was struggling with that dynamic in one way, shape or form, because it makes sense that two completely different people who grew up in two different homes, in different environments have different instincts and expectations and kind of understanding of what this whole parenting thing even is and aren't even all that aware and conscious of what that is to know how it's different than the other person's. And then you're just winging it as you go parenting every day with like a new challenge and that's keeping you on your toes. And you don't actually have like very cohesive meetings to create these strategies and to hash things out and answer each other's questions and be able to really see things from the other person's view and understand why it is they interpret it that way or why they're so triggered by that behavior or why this matters so much to them. And that's really what I'm trying to create through coaching sessions is to be able to have opportunities to get those things out in the open, become aware of them, and then be able to hash them out and have both parties feel like they come away with very educated decisions in, okay, well, yours is plan A, mine's plan B. What's plan C that's actually a really good fit for the kid that's in front of us? Because we can't create that until they exist and we get to know them and realize what works and what doesn't. I think that that's really the thing that you're right. It undermines what we're trying to do. We can be the most intentional parent in the world, but if every time you know we're handling something and our spouse is handling something, it's completely opposite of each other, then our child is only feeling more and more frustrated and confused and you know eventually isn't learning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It causes conflict and confusion for the kid. And so it's like not fair to the child, I think, yeah. because it's not giving them a winning chance. Right. Or us as a whole is giving us a winning chance. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's not, you know, when you meet someone and you're kind of trying to decide if you want to spend the rest of your life with them or marrying them, you know, there's a lot of discussion about like where you want to live. Do you want to buy a house? And do you want to have kids? Mm -hmm. But then the discussion kind of stops there. There's not that much discussion of like, what is your parenting style and what are your, you know, philosophies around parenting? And there's a lot of assumptions being made, you know, as you're going through the pregnancy and, and into the process of having children. And I do kind of touch a little bit about that when I teach like prenatal classes, you know, kind of have that discussion before the baby comes. And I focus more on like things like who's going to handle nighttime feedings because you may be thinking uh, that you're going to split it 50-50 with your partner, you know, especially if you're a breastfeeding parent, you know, your partner might be thinking, oh, I don't need to do any night feedings because I can't really feed the baby at the breast. And so sometimes, you know, at 2 a.m. is the moment that you find out, oh, you weren't planning on helping me out here. <laughs> and that can be a tricky time to try to have that conversation when you're mm. both sleep deprived and the baby's crying and you're stressed. And it's so much better when you kind of clear that things up before you're even in that situation. Right. So Tina, after that first step where you kind of go to the core values and is there like, um, I don't want to say template, but is there like a process I'm trying to picture what a family business plan would look like if you wrote it out on paper. Like, are there different, okay, now that we talked about like your values, next we're going to talk about this, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So it's kind of like six modules and it all is culminating in a family mission statement. Each page is is kind of like a set of handouts that work together in like a workbook. But then the the piece, the resistance is, is culminating all of this 
conversational exercise into the mission statement that tries to summarize who you are and what you're trying to do. And when you can create that vision for your kids and you can use a lot of phrases that start with, well, in our family, we da 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 da, then that helps them really understand that belonging piece of what's different in your family than another family. And that helps them really feel like they have a voice and a contributing factor into who you are as a family. And then they can kind of ascribe that for themselves and say, oh yeah, like we cheer each other on or we go on adventures or we like do some of these things that are different from my friends' families. But I really like how my family does it because I know why that's important to my family or that we all kind of love that or that's a really important thing to my dad. And so that's why we, you know, cheer for this sports team that none of us really care about, but it's all for dad, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's the end goals, the core values, which is kind of a list of like 30 positive traits that you have to really narrow down to your top 10 and then put them in order, which is a very hard thing to do because we just want to create good humans. Mm -hmm. But you have to really get clear about what is it that you want your kids to be. And if you make that as the shorter you make that list, the more intentional you can be about it. Because then you know that you're going to maximize those teaching moments and you're going to build in some experiences for that to be cultivated. And you're going to really focus on that word or, you know, bringing that into a lot of conversations. So we identify those values. And then we talk about your family's identity and things from your personality and your spouse's personality that are going to, you're going to infuse into your day to day and the things that are just going to be true of how you spend your time and money differently than another family because again, we can't do all the things and have all the things. What is it going to look like for your family? And then that kind of, you start writing out, well, in our family, we do this. In our family, we do that. In our family, we are this. In our family, we are that. And then that kind of, you kind of of put into a little mission statement. And then we talk about, okay, if that's true, how are you going to do that? And what does that look like? And what does that look like now and in five years and in 10 years? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it does. And I'm sure that you address issues like um, like disciplinary approaches and things like that. Yes. Yeah, so the family business plan kind of homework is going alongside a lot of the one-on-one conversations I'm having with my clients at the same time, where we're trying to work through the specific discipline struggles that they're having a hard time with right now. And when we are finding better, more effective solutions that feel really aligned for them, we're having conversations about, well, how did your parents react to that behavior? And like, why is it that you have a hard time having patience in this situation? And how do you see it? What's the story that you're telling yourself when you see this behavior versus the story that you're telling yourself about this behavior? And we really try to have a lot of these conversations that's bringing these things to light that aren't always very obvious, but are playing a huge role in how we are winging it as we go. And through that process, alongside the homework on those modules, they're becoming to have a whole new awareness and, and level of consciousness about like why I'm doing things the way I'm doing things. And usually there is some hashing out that has to happen between parenting partners because again, they weren't raised the same They have a totally different worldview because of their own life experience and they need to be able to share, well, like this is something that's really important to me because of this reason. Here's basically the fears that I have that are attached to this. And we have to really kind of rewrite those stories of, well, actually 
this is very normal or developmentally appropriate and you don't have to panic, you know, at this level and we can, you know, put those fears aside and we can better understand why it is that, you know, it bothers you so much and then find a new way of dealing with it. That's maybe option C. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that there's like, it sounds like a lot of self-exploration there to kind of figure out, like you said, why you react in certain ways based on how you were raised. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we do that enough in our society. In addition to kind of having that discussion with your partner, but you're having that inner dialogue with yourself and that self-exploration. For example, like I knew my family yelled a lot when I was growing up. Although I'm much better now, I tended to be a yeller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it took me a long time to figure out, okay, if, if I'm feeling a certain emotion or I'm getting upset, yelling doesn't, even though that's what I'm used to and that's what I was taught, that's not necessarily the best way to handle yeah. um, the situation. Yeah. But it's really easy to just try to beat yourself up for it and then, mm-hmm. you know, should all over yourself. Like, well, I just should be able to, to handle this and this shouldn't be that hard and I shouldn't be yelling. But there's so much underneath it. It's so complicated. And when we can give ourselves a lot more compassion and grace when we put all those connections with the dots and say, okay, well, this makes sense that this is my only instinct. <laughs> and that's not something I taught myself. So I can forgive myself for that. Now, how do I find new ways to see this and react to this that are going to help and make me feel a lot more confident that I can handle whatever my child throws my way and I can feel proud of the way that I respond. And that's a hard thing to get to. It really is. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of a family business plan before. I have heard of a family mission statement. I was trying to remember where I did hear about that. Can you talk a little bit more detail about a family mission statement? Like and give some examples maybe. It's originally an idea from Stephen Covey, who wrote like the seven healthy habits of effective people and effective families and has like the whole, you know, book series. But there's different ways that you can run with it. I've seen examples where it's like an acrostic and I've seen examples where it's kind of like a poem or, you know, like a whole long paragraph, the manifesto of sorts, or you see them on Pinterest where it's like in our family, we, and then it's just like a whole bunch of verbs. So it's kind of however it resonates with you most. I always want it to be very, very practical and easy to remember. So the shorter, the better. That way it becomes something that does come up in conversation over and over rather than just being a piece of paper you slide into a folder never to be seen again. That's not helping anybody. So I've had families that have decided to like put theirs up on the wall in their dining room or something like that. And for my family, I ended up finding art on Etsy that resonated with me so much that that kind of became our family mission statement. And we reverse engineered it a little bit because I found it before this process. And it was be brave, be kind, be you, be wise, be happy, be true. Oh, I love that. That's like our family thing that we like the girls refer to them as our family rules, but they're not really rules. They're just mm-hmm. like the guidelines to live by that, you know, we always kind of talk about, well, what does it mean to be you or how are you being brave in this situation? And we just always kind of refer back to those six terms. And they're the way that we kind of remind every single day, this is our expectations of you. And they are ways of being that aren't necessarily dependent upon, you know, you getting an A in school today. It's much more like we care about 
how you're interacting when treating other people and, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what that looks like for us. I love the idea of like making it nice and pretty and displaying it in your home as like an everyday reminder. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about having something like this and having it as a visual as well is that it's not you constantly on the kids negotiating terms of behavior. It's remembered these are mm-hmm. how it takes away the you versus yes. me and makes it a we are following yes. this. I like that. I think that's yeah. for everybody beneficial, especially the kids that they're learning. Mm-hmm. Yes. With families that do have a little bit older children, I will encourage them to kind of have a family meeting where they create it together. And there's a lot of question prompts that create that conversation. But then they really do have that whole family buy-in where it's like, hey, we agreed, we committed to this. We're all just holding each other accountable. And they have it on their wall so that the kids can still even say like, hey, mom, you're not acting like how we talked about. And like that being okay to have that be like a whole family level of accountability so that it really helps the kids see that, yeah, it's not just a me versus you. I'm telling you what to do hierarchy. It really is like we're all trying to aspire and grow and learn together. And, you know, here are the things that we all kind of identified as being the main thing, main goals. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there's a bit of a transition period where everyone's still learning and Oh yeah. Probably a lot of apologies being made. <laughs> Deviating from the plan and, and Oh like, yeah. Like one yeah. of the things that happened when I was learning to not yell anymore was I would slip up and yell, but then I would immediately apologize to my kids. Mm. Like that was not the best reaction. I shouldn't have yelled. Then they would say, it's okay. And I would say, no, don't say it's okay because it's not. But if you want to forgive me, you can say, you know, I forgive you, but don't say that it's okay. Yeah, I say that too. You taught me that, Shelly. <laughs> Years ago, as friends were like, uh-uh, we're going to change that. I'm like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is just our instinct of like, no, it's okay. It's not. It doesn't change. It's not. Yeah. And that's really good to lead by example for sure because they really do – catch more than we teach just the way that we are living our lives by example. And that's a really big way that we can make a big impression by the, all the ways we screw up because <laughs> they're going to happen. <laughs> I think it's so important for kids to see that their parents are not perfect, mm-hmm. but that they handle their imperfections with grace rather than with like shame or anger. Right. Mm. Right. Grace and growth. Mm. Embrace mm. for it and learn to grow from it. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Like that would be a good family value is, yeah. would be growth, like self-growth. Oh, yeah. 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 I always say that like one of the things that I've always tried to point out is if you want a changed behavior, not looking at somebody and saying you need to change or I need this to be changed from you, but more grow because change is almost like a personal offense. You know, like I have to be somebody different where growth means exactly Mm -hmm. who you are, just getting better, you know? So even things like that, nobody's perfect here. Nobody's going to be perfect here. You don't need to change. I love that reframe. We just want us all to be growing, you know, even presenting it as like a family instead of like, this is your issue presenting as like a family. Okay. Like when this situation happens, this is the behavior that results. So while we're working on it, what can we do to prevent 
this situation from happening in the first place. And yes, up with a, like a plan for that. And then that way, I think it, it leads to less blame. Mm-hmm. Always correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel. <laughs> like you're no. here, but. Yeah, we have way more tools in our toolkit and like power on uh, the things that we can control when we're wa- acting proactively, preventatively, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And when you're taking a family through this process, how about how long does it take to like develop the family plan, but then also kind of work it into their lives naturally without mm-hmm. having to think about it too much? Yeah. So I kind of figured it out through trial and error. I started it as a workshop and I was like, this is way too much for a workshop. <laughs> this, isn't this is not going to work. This needs to be in, you know, and build upon itself. So now the way that I work with families is over a four month period. So eight sessions total, two per month spaced out, you know, every two weeks ish. And that's really what I found to be the most doable just to be able to fit it into your life, you know, having like two hours committed a month. Mm -hmm. But then also that's about the amount of time that it takes to really find the momentum and build in the new habits and have the level of support and accountability that continues to make it a priority long enough that it, you know, matters into the future and not just like as a phase or a season. So that's kind of how I've set up my services now to be a four month coaching package and you know, kind of transform things that way through the behaviors and through really working on that cop, good cop dynamic and building that family business plan in. And then just really kind of having lots of individualized takeaways of here are the solutions that are going to work for your family and, you know, get all the questions answered and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, do you find that there's like wildly varying values and plans or do you feel like most families go in wanting similar things? Oh, good question. When they work on that core value sheet together that has like 35 or 40 different positive attributes, it's usually the like wife has five and then like the husband has five and like they kind of just meld those together, but they usually have opposite emphasis is where like, you know, the wife may be more focused on, I really want them to be kind and I really want them to be compassionate and like with these more soft skills. And then the husband comes in and he's like, well, I want them to be determined and I want them to be hardworking and, you know, just like totally kind of the opposite yang to the yang, but both sides have value. Both sides create, you know, well-rounded human being. And I think that is where we can use our strengths in our opposites to be really good teachers of what we know. And, you know, maybe there's always going to be some sort of dynamic of one parent is a little more lenient, one parent's a little more strict, or, you know, has a little bit of a higher bar. But as long as they both agree on this is what our expectations are, and this is what, what we know to be normal or appropriate for this age, and this is kind of where we're leaning them towards and working towards, and, you know, how I want to be acting, it's mostly how are we focusing on ourselves? Then you're going to be able to infuse both sides of those values into the ways that you parent together and be able to see the value in both. But I think it's when you don't have those things verbalized and it's just the mom saying, we need to be kind. And the, like the husband saying, no, they need to be hardworking. It seems very much like it's two competing factors that are just subconsciously working against in the same moments and helps to just really get those things identified. And it's very hard to boil it down 
to only maybe like your top five because we just we want our kids to be all the things and you know maybe those words even mean different things to different people like well what does it really mean to you to you know persevere or have these characteristics and so it just helps to get it all out with somebody else that way you're becoming a lot more clear of your own intentions at the same time that we're just going along as you go. Hmm. That's awesome. And do you feel like, because I know I, like I have a business plan and then I have like a policies and procedures manual, which is getting mm-hmm. into the nitty gritty details. Do you kind of include those nitty gritty details? Like what happens if someone deviates from the plan? This is our agreed um, plan for accountability and stuff like that. Or is that kind of left up to, the communication end. Yeah. I don't have something specifically built in for that uh, when it comes to, you know, maybe how the kids are doing. It's more of how are we as parents going to keep this a priority by having, you know, check-ins like every six months and be able to revise things or go back to it and just to like have a refresher. And I usually work with families that have kids under the age of seven. They're less of an active and some of that. And maybe, you know, I think the role of parenting shifts, you know, at different stages, the first eight years is really when we kind of are their teacher. And then from like eight to 12, it's more of like a counselor. So in that counselor phase, I could see a lot more conversations about like, Hey, this is what I'm noticing. And this is what we agreed upon. And like, how do we solve this problem? Like, what can we do to support you? And having a lot more of those, you know, built in as they get older. But in the in the first few years, you're still just like going back to the basics of like, here's what it looks like to not be so rude. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not to be a jerk. Right. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to that. Basics. Yeah. yeah. I can just picture if I did this, me saying that's not in the plan. That's not in the plan. Stop deviating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's one of my families that like has it up, you know, on their wall where they like in the living room and they're just like, we just refer to it all the time. So we're just like, nope, nope, it's not on the chart. Nope. (laughs) And it is easier to parent that way than having to come up with all of these power struggle, you know, negotiations. It's just like, it's way easier to have a non-biased party have a role of like, nope, we're just using this tool. And that's what we talk about. Right. That's wonderful. Is there like an ideal time that families should, I know that any time would be better than not doing it at all. But if you were to say like, ideally you would do this before you have kids or when your Mm -hmm. kids are a certain age, do you find that there's an ideal time? I think like marriage counseling, you could benefit from it at any point. (laughs) <laughs> but I think it does evolve where if I would have done this with my husband before we had kids, our core values would probably look different. And the things that we would have thought were on our thing of like how we were going to lead our family would pan out differently. <laughs> we all have the things where we're like, well, my kids will never. And here we are. Our kids are doing all the things. So <laughs> <laughs> the perfect parents have never had children yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. So as long as you're willing to continue to revise it and have it as like a living document that you, you know, can maybe rewrite every year as your own priorities change. And as you grow as humans, I think that then you can just start it early as early as possible and then just continue to use it as a guide. But I think 
we're only getting to more and more of a closer place of what truly matters to us as we can grow ourselves and do, you know, our own personal work and say, actually, you know, the things that I thought were important aren't as important because I've realized that the places that I've struggled as relate back to these other areas and how do I, you know, maybe do that differently than my parents did or, you know, try to set them more up for success than I was. And I think we always find more ways to kind of perfect and work on our craft of parenting. So I would encourage it as they are, maybe you don't need it in like the first year of parenting, but as you start to endure those terrible twos or the three nagers and you're really all of a sudden dealing with defiance and, you know, meltdowns on a next level, then you do need to have a plan of how are we handling this? Because Mm -hmm. you either start to dive into things that out of desperation, you know, weren't on the plan, but you're spanking and you said you wouldn't spank or, you know, using timeouts, but it's not feeling right. And like, those are really when you start to have those rumblings of what are we doing and Mm -hmm. how's it going to work, you know? Right. And also different personalities I found with my kids, like some needed more structure than others. Some seem to kind of fall in line more easily. And if, mm-hmm. you know, just looked at cross, they would be like, get in line if they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing or some you could essentially like <laughs> nearly beat and they would not obey. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so sometimes you're kind of like, you know, gosh, like same genetics, same parents, same. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they are so different. And I found I have five kids and they were all so different and their needs were so different, but having the core, um, be consistent always seemed to be the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And some of the responses being different based on their nature and their individual needs as kids. Yes. It's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, it was. If you have older children, you know, it's hard. You know how kids are. They always compare how you interact with them versus how you interact with like their sister or whatever. And so it's a lot of like, well, you never allowed me to do this or you never let me get away with this. But if you have a plan with the values, then you could, you know, potentially help them understand like this is how we're helping your sister get to those values, which is a different way than we helped you get to those values because you're different people. I imagine it might help with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fairness doesn't exist. It does not. No, it does not. You can't. It's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to do it. We have to personalize it. Yep. Yep. One of our like family phrases that we use all the time is different is good. And like, you can use it all the time talking about basically differences in how people are being treated or what that looks like and how you really embrace, you know, how everyone is different. And that's actually a very added value, you know, with the diversity in our lives. So I come back to that all the time of whenever I have to handle things differently between my daughters who are only 15 months apart, but could not be more opposite. (laughs) Their personalities are just worlds apart than, you know, helping them see like, oh yeah, that's different. Like your sister got something different than you. Different Mm -hmm. is good. Remember? Like we can, we're okay with that. So it's all in how we are handling that and how confident we feel about our own approach because if we do feel like they're exploiting our weaknesses or calling us out on something that we didn't really feel like was a good rule in the first place then that's where we do run into trouble of like second guessing ourselves and going back on what we said and then creating precedents that we didn't intend (laughs) yeah so true 
This has been so much fun. I love learning about this concept that you develop. It's something that you would never think of, but it makes sense when you kind of explain what it is. Can you tell our listeners where people can find you and connect with you? Yeah, I have a free gift I would love to offer any family that does have a particularly hard to parent kiddo or are just dealing with lots of meltdowns and tantrums and big emotions that are, I mean, we're all in that camp now with the pandemic. So I have a a workbook that they can download for free. It's at parentwholeheartedly.com slash emotions. So you can find me on my website, parentingwholeheartedly.com. I am at parent underscore wholeheartedly on Instagram. And I do have my own podcast as well. It's called Fit Motherhood. And on all the podcast platforms, wherever you're listening to this, I offer interviews with other moms that are feeling vulnerable and and resonating with that feeling of failing and screwing it up and sharing what that looks like in life and being able to share some hope and encouragement of what they've learned and how they've grown. So that's Failing Motherhood is my podcast. So Awesome. And I will put those links in the show notes so people can connect with you. And I love your Instagram page too. I think it's got such great. Thanks. Yeah. I've been having a lot of fun with that lately. So come say hi on Instagram. (laughs) I am real on my stories and, and I love to go back and forth. So definitely find me there. Perfect. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the baby pro podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTapIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTapIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.